right, hey, good morning, Messiah. God's peace and his joy and his goodness. May it be with all of you. Hey, listen to this. I love this quote. John O'Donohue wrote, one of the greatest treasures in the world is a contented heart. That is a great quote. Well, let me tell you about someone that I know who actually possesses this treasure. He was someone I very much admire, and I have admired him for over 30 years. His name is John, and he is currently 93 years old, and he also happens to be my father-in-law. Here's a recent picture of John doing some wee bowling. I recall the first time that I stepped into his house because I don't think I've ever been in a house that small. Little three-bedroom, one-bath brick house on St. Charles Avenue in Shrewsbury, Missouri. It was here that John and his wife lived their entire married life together and raised three daughters. Imagine that, three daughters, one bathroom. <laughs> but to John, it was a castle. He was and still is a very contented man. He is a joyful man. I'm not even sure he knows this or thinks about it at all, but to me, he has discovered the big secret in life. Someone once asked the great philosopher Socrates, who is the wealthiest man? And Socrates wisely answered, he who is content with least. That's my father-in-law. About eight years ago, my mother-in-law, who is also someone I love and admire, she passed away. And so it wasn't too much longer that it was needed that John would have to leave his home and move into a facility that would take good care of him. And you know, he never looked back. Although his new place was half the size of his old place, he was thrilled with it. He still is. I remember when we moved him in and his response was, isn't this wonderful? Can you believe this? It's like living in a fancy hotel. He still feels this way. My wife, she calls her dad every day, and I often overhear their conversation. He is still amazed that the menu changes every day. <laughs> that there's not one, but two kinds of vegetables. And dessert, too. And there's all these activities. He goes to a, a painting class in the morning, and then a, a piano player's going to come in the afternoon, and then, of course, dinner, and then maybe a movie. Can you believe this, he says. Isn't it wonderful? Indeed it is. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's turn our hearts to God's word. This morning we're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And here the apostle Paul is writing to a, his friend, a young pastor named Timothy. He writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Uh, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, 
have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is God's word. Well, as you know, over the past two months, we have been talking about following Jesus in this world. We've been discussing the various components that make up a well-rounded life of discipleship. And along the way, we have been asking ourselves, how's it going? Am I living it out as best that I can? Or am I just talking a good game? Am I just talking the talk? Well, if you've been taking it seriously, then you know that this has been a, a real challenging series because you have to fight for the good fight of faith. It's a challenge to worship every week and to make time to be in community with other Christians and to grow in your faith through God's word and prayer and to serve others and to give the way God asks us to. It's a challenge and that's because it's a choice. We're given a choice. Jesus says, follow me. Do life like I do. And some do, and some kind of do, and others do not. I think this painting by Caravaggio captures what I'm getting at. It is a little tough to see because it's so dark, but the title of this work is called The Calling of St. Matthew. Here Jesus, he's, he's in the background over here, and he is kind of, he's pointing to Matthew over there. He's at the table. Matthew is a cheat, and he is a bully, and Jesus says, Come and, and follow me. And, and Matthew, in, in the middle here, he's kind of pointing to himself like, uh, are you talking to me? You know. Well, we know how Matthew responds to Christ's call. The tax collector becomes a disciple and an apostle and the writer of the gospel that bears his name. But what about the others at the table? The two young men here they seem to be attentive and alert to the new challenge, but the others, the others are so concentrated on counting the money, they're so consumed by it, so shut in on themselves that they are completely oblivious to the magnitude of the event. They missed it. We too have our choices to make. Will we follow or will we miss out? We have been given free will to choose. Choose which aspects of discipleship to participate in. All of them, some of them, none of them. We can choose to put Jesus' words into practice or not. We're free to choose, and that's why it's a challenge. If God had said, you will worship me every Sunday, 
You will give me 10% of your income. You will read your Bibles every day because if you don't, I ain't going to let you into heaven. Well, if he had said that, I mean, really, what choice would we really have? Of course, we'd be all in then. I mean, who wants to go to hell? Not me. In fact, if God had given us little choice, I don't know about you, but I'd play on the safe side. I'd make sure I gave just a little bit more than 10%. And I'd read my Bible twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. And I'd not only go to worship uh, on Sunday, you know, here, I'd also find another church that worships on another weeknight so I could do even a little bit more than he asked because I'd want to make sure that I was in. But thanks be to God, that's not how he operates because that's not how grace works. Salvation is freely given to all who believe, whether you fully participate in a life of discipleship or not. Well, today is Jubilee Sunday, and uh, you've made your choice. At Messiah, Jubilee Sunday comes around each year, and we come with our, our offerings, or tithes, maybe a special over-the-top offering. Maybe you come with a challenge. You're going to take on this, this 90-day tithing challenge and, and find out what that's all about. But we come with our, our pledges of commitment uh, for the Lord's work. We literally lay our cards on the table. It's one of my most favorite days of the year because I love to see God's people responding in thankfulness and in trust in such a real and tangible way. That's really what's at the heart of Jubilee Sunday. It's a response to a call. And it's all wrapped up in two T words. Thankfulness and trust. I love these two T words. I think this is what life's all about. Not only do they describe what Jubilee Sunday is all about, they also capture the essence of what life of following Jesus is all about. What's more, these two T words describe what contentment is all about. Great words, thankfulness and trust. Trust and thankfulness. Thankfulness is all about the past. Trust is all about the future. Well, Let's look at trust first. We trust God that he will work it all out. We trust that he is going to provide. He will find a way. He will take care of all of our needs. Trust is being okay with not having all the answers figured out in advance, but, but knowing that, I don't know how, but somehow God's kind of work the good in all things for you. Trust. Now, the, the second T word is, is thankfulness. Uh, that's being thankful for all that he's given. At peace with God. Even if he gave you nothing more than what he already has. Instead of chasing after what you don't have and always looking at what you don't have and don't have and don't have. You, no, you turn that all around and you're just grateful for all the blessings of life. Count, 
count them one after another after another. If you have thankfulness, then you really don't need more. Now, uh, now together, uh, trust combined with thankfulness, oh, that equals contentment. Trust and thankfulness go hand in hand. Author Brennan Manning surmises, he says, Let, let's just say I interviewed 10 people and I asked the question, do you trust God? And, and all, everybody says, yeah, I trust God. But in reality, only one of them really trusts God. He says, how would I be able to find out which one was telling the truth? He said, I would video record each of the 10 lives for a month. And then after watching the videos, I would pass judgment on this one thing, this one criterion. The person with an abiding spirit of gratitude is the one who trusts God. The one who is thankful is the one who trusts. Yes, the foremost quality of a trusting disciple is thankfulness. Thankfulness and trust equal contentment and godliness with contentment is great gain. You heard what Paul said about the enemy of contentment, and that is the love of money. He said it's a trap. It's a temptation that, that tricks and fools people into many harmful things. The, the love of money, it's, it's a root, and it grows, and it leads to ruin for it can steer people away from the faith. Indeed, money is a tricky thing. That's why we've been addressing it over the past two weeks. It's important that we put it in its place. Indulge me for a moment. I know it's a little dark, but you can do this. I want you to take a look at your hands. It was Martin Luther who expressed that God divided the hand into fingers so that money would slip through. I'd like you to consider hands this morning, specifically your hands and God's hands. And I'd like to do that by taking a look at one of my most favorite stories. Perhaps you too are familiar with The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. I've always liked it, although I got to tell you as a kid, that picture of old Shel in the back cover really gave me the creeps. I mean, <laughs> yeah, okay. But the book is great. Now, I'm not going to read you the whole deal. We're just going to get to the gist of it. Uh, it's about a boy, and it's about a tree. And this tree loved that little boy, and that little boy loved that tree. And at first, the boy desires nothing, wants nothing at all except to be with that tree. However, as the boy grows, so does his wants. First, he wants money. And so the giving tree offers her apples for him to sell so that he could be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree and gathered her apples, and he carried them away. Then the years pass, discontented, the boy returns. Now he needs a house. The tree offers her branches, and with arms loaded, he takes off again, only to return years later. This time, still unhappy, but now he wants a boat that will take him far away from the boredoms of life. 
And so the tree gives up her trunk. And then one day, the boy returns to the one that loves him best. By now, she has given him everything. All that remains is an old stump. The boy, now an old man, wants only a quiet place to sit and rest. And the giving tree gives once more. The end. It's a good story. But it's kind of heavy, though. What do you think about that boy? You go home and read it. You'll find out that the boy never says thank you. Not once. Do you notice the, the boy's lack of contentment? Did you notice his hands? Always clutching, grabbing, full of more and more, but never satisfied. Hanging on so tightly, never relaxing the grip until the end. But by the end, that boy doesn't seem all that happy to me. It looks like he's pierced himself with many griefs. Maybe not. Maybe he figured it all out at the end. But we don't have to wait that long. It's a profound little story because it's a mirror. By nature, you and I are clutchers. If only I had this. If only when this next thing happens. If only, only. We scrape and we claw and we gather and we work and we hold on to all we've got. And then maybe something. Down the road, I'll be content. If only I had a little bit more. And it doesn't matter who tries to convince us otherwise to relax the grip. We make our choices. Hey, God's word is clear. you've been paying attention the last two weeks, God's word is clear. And yet, we have this reflexive response when it comes to giving. We, we say, Lord, I hear you. I know what you said, and I know it's true. But you see, my circumstances are different. Because, and fill in the blank, but we can't live with that. So then we, but, but someday, someday, when things are different, when things change, when in the future, and the next thing you know, you're stumped, and the story's over. The end. 
what if you could rewrite the story, like starting today? Or what if that boy collected those apples and made applesauce, and he stocked the shelves of Oasis Food Pantry for those who are really in need? And then what if he, he took the branches to build a house with Habitat for Humanity? Or, or what if he made a boat from the trunk and he sailed on a mission trip to, to share with others the good news and the, the love of God? Man, that sounds really good. I guarantee both the tree and the boy would be happy with that because that's how it works in the kingdom of God. That's the joy of giving. Oh, wow. Nobody knows this more than God himself. How wonderful the hand of God. <laughs> what a difference between his hands and ours. Ours clutching. His totally empty. Throughout the history of God's people, God has opened his hands, generously provides all that we need, food, drink, house, home, protection, blessing, love. And when Jesus came and he saw the needs of the people, he opened his hands, he taught, he touched, he healed. He fed, he loved, he, free, he freed. And when he was about to go to the cross as sin payment for us all, he did not hold back. He did not hold on to his life. No, he gave it all. He emptied himself. And he opened his hands up and said, pound away. chose the giving tree of his cross as the ultimate symbol of how generous and how reckless his love is. You take another look at your hands, just a peek. Do you like what you see? Do you wish your hands looked more like his? Well, if so, don't, don't start, don't, don't wring them. Leave them alone. Because if God needs to change your hands, he usually doesn't start there. He starts right here. He starts in the heart. And what he does is he takes you to his giving tree. You see, it's the cross. It's the cross. It's always the cross the cross where you'll find contentment, that you have everything. It's the cross you find trust that if he loves you that much, oh, you could trust him. It's the cross where you, you find thankfulness. Your future is set, it's secure, and it's a good one. It's the giving tree of our Savior's cross, which that's what supplies the lasting motivation to choose to let go. And so we worship. 
love, serve, we give, we follow, because he's the one who first loved and gave to us. You see, you're in a relationship with a God who just flat out loves you. He is so happy to give. Provides you with food and clothing and it's so much more, all that you need, and then a, a bunch of wants too, for some reason, over the top. And he gives you what you most need of all, which is the forgiveness of sin. He is the giving tree who supplies for all of your needs, has given up his son, given up for you. He graciously gives. He graciously forgives. And he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. He doesn't grow tired of it. Look around. Every sunrise, every breath, every morsel of food, two kinds of vegetables and dessert too. Everything is a gift from his open hands. God's generosity. These expressions all around us, they confront us everywhere we turn. That is, if we are paying any kind of attention, the question is, are we? Do we see what's in front of us? Are we alert enough to the magnitude of his generosity toward us? Count your blessings one after another after another. Sing, sing of the goodness of God. Take one last look at your hands. What's the truth about them? One thing is certain. If you follow Jesus closely, you'll dive deep into God's generosity and your hands will start looking a whole lot more like his. They really will. They'll start opening up a little more frequently and they'll stay open longer, longer periods of time. And you'll learn perhaps the most amazing thing of all. And that in the opening of your hands, you will find what your clenched hands never, never could. And that is contentment. And trust. And thankfulness. And lasting jubilee. Amen.